0: Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talk to Sarah Hobolt, who is Sutherland Chair in European Institutions at the London School of Economics and Political Science. The conversation focuses on her 2016 article, The Brexit Vote, A Divided Nation, A Divided Continent. In this article, which was published in September 2016, so shortly after the UK decided to leave the European Union, Sarah investigates the individual level determinants of the Brexit vote. Next to social demographic characteristics, such as age and education, national identities and attitudes about immigration played a core role for the decision. We then also discussed Brexit in the broader context of referendums on European integration and people's attitudes toward the European Union more generally. Why do some people favor more integration than others? And can we imagine a similar development in other European countries? Sarah and I discuss these and other questions in the next 45 minutes. If you want to know more about Sarah and her research, you can follow her on Twitter under at Sarah Hobart or visit her website. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, Tariq. How are you?
0: So today we're going to talk about Brexit. Brexit really, the political development that, at least until a couple of weeks ago, dominated the news cycle and the political discourse in many European countries. And we're going to talk about your 2016 article that came out quite soon after the Brexit vote and explains the individual level determinants of the Brexit decision. Before we start um, to talk about it in more detail, I would ask you what was the motivation behind that article?
1: Brexit, of course, was, you know, a momentous event. I mean, mainly for those of us who live in the UK, but really for Europe, having a member state voluntarily leaving the European Union when you've had for decades, members, countries wanting to join the EU. So that was really historical. But also for me, I've been interested in referendums on the EU long before Brexit was even on the cards. And so it was interesting, you know, from, from the point of view for me that it wasn't really that surprising in many ways that we ended up with Brexit the way we did given what we know about referendums. So that was interesting for me. And then on the other hand, of course, it was just such an unprecedented historical event that needed, uh, you know, to be looked at from all of us who are interested in, you know, European politics, public opinion and elections.
0: Mm. So tell us what happened.
1: So, of course, you know, there's sort of a long term, I guess, and a short term uh, sets of explanations when you think of Brexit, and the long term is really that Britain has been a Eurosceptic country in many ways for for decades. We had had a referendum all the way back in 1975 that confirmed Britain's membership of the EU, and that was a big victory. But ever since then, really, Britain has been has stood out as more Eurosceptic than other member states in the EU. But also, I think what's even more notable, if you think of the differences, is that the, that the British elites and the British media has been more Eurosceptic and more divided on Europe than what we've generally seen on the continent. So that's the sort of long term background uh, to the Brexit vote. Then what actually happened was, of course, that we had uh, a conservative prime minister, David Cameron. We've had many since, uh, but that was back then. David Cameron, who led a party that was deeply split uh, over Europe, we've had uh, we had the resurgence of the Eurosceptic uh, UKIP party in the UK, and the combination of those things led David Cameron to promise um, that he would renegotiate uh, Britain's relationship with the EU and then call an in-out referendum. So that was the background, really, the sort of very domestic electoral and party political background to why the referendum was held. So that negotiation, renegotiations, didn't quite go the way that Cameron had hoped. He got some things uh, in terms of um, uh, not having to, you know, basically opting out of the ever closer union and and other things on uh, emergency breaks and immigration and so on. And I think the EU felt that he was given something, but uh, from a British point of view and in the British media was just slammed as this was nothing. The EU had given us nothing. And so the starting point really for the whole referendum campaign was that Cameron had to... um, to forget all about these rene- renegotiations and really campaign on um, on the dangers, the economic dangers of leaving the EU. But he had to do a sort of 180 U-turn from the point of view where he'd been very sceptical and very critical of the EU in the negotiation to one where he said, "Now you really have to vote for staying in. And that was, um, and the background to that was one where his own party was split. And of course, a very prominent uh, conservative um, campaigner and conservative uh, politician, namely Boris Johnson, was really the leader of the Leave campaign. And he's, of course, now the British uh, prime minister. So that was really the background to that, that you had this split conservative party, split government that went into a campaign. from a starting point of weakness in terms of the negotiations uh, haven't gone the way they quite had hoped for, or haven't been interpreted uh, quite the way they hoped for domestically. And then he had to all of a sudden sell this EU uh, package, this EU membership to the British public. Now, so, so, so there was already a kind of a, a weak starting point from the campaign. On top of that, we then have a leave campaign that's not united. We have the sort of official leave campaign, and then we have a sort of uh, campaign around Nigel Farage and his UKIP party, uh, but nonetheless incredibly effective. Uh, so whereas on the on the Remain side, it was very much this economic argument. The main slogan was that uh, there would be this would be a leap in the dark, and this was really all about the economic risks. On the other hand, very uh, cleverly, uh, the Leave campaign made this really about politics, about identity and about sovereignty. And they had this famous slogan about take back control. And taking back control, of course, can appeal um, to all sorts of things about wanting wanting sovereignty, wanting to be in control of of your own destiny and, and, and so on. And it was also a very optimistic, positive, upbeat message um, and that's uh, for, in, in particular, for Nigel Farage's uh, campaign, was also then linked very successfully to an anti immigration message. Um, so there was this issue in linkage between the reason we cannot control immigration, the reason we cannot control our borders, is because of the EU. Now, what Why that was important was because, uh, whereas the EU was really not at all a salient issue to British people when going into the campaign, immigration had been hugely salient for decades. And by linking this Eurosceptic message with a message of controlling immigration, lowering immigration, uh, this became an issue that was uh, highly salient and also popular with a a very large uh, chunk of the population, as we saw.
0: So within that context then you look at the really the individual level determinants of brexit supporters. So who are they? What is the group that really supported leave most over remain?
1: So if we if we uh start by looking at some of the demographic um demographic factors we can see that there were sort of two uh, clear demographic factors that stood out. One was age. So we see that younger people were far more likely to vote Remain, whereas older people were far more likely to vote Leave. And the other one is education. So it was really the best educated uh sort of, you know, young university graduates uh, or middle-aged university graduates even would vote Remain, whereas people uh who, had, who were less educated uh, were much more likely to vote Leave. Other sort of Sort of uh, economic factors like just income didn't necessarily matter. For example, the self-employed would tend to vote um, uh, Leave, uh, even though you know some of them were very wealthy, of course. So it's not a sort of clear the poor versus the rich. It's much more these sort of age and education demographic. And of course, these are very much some of the same predictors we know uh, from studying, for example, support for the radical right, uh, also in continental Europe. So there are some clear parallels there.
0: And then um, you only you do not only look at those socio demographics, but also attitudes. Right? There is some clear and identities, and I think there are some very clear and strong predictors of the decision.
1: Yeah. So um, you know, we know also from the literature on your skepticism that it's not just these kind of. Uh, winners versus losers of globalization and these demographic uh, factors as matters, it's also much more sort of identity or what some people call cultural factors that tend to determine the vote. And again, we see that also and tend to determine your skepticism. And we see that also in the Brexit vote. So uh, what we found in, in the UK was that Uh, Not surprisingly, of course, people who identify with Europe uh, would be much more likely to vote Remain. Now, the thing is, that was not uh, particularly helpful to the Remain campaign in that that's a very small group. But interestingly, also people who identified as English were more likely to vote Leave, whereas the British identity that's generally sort of seen as more inclusive uh, in in the in the u k was more was stronger predictor than of remain uh, when compared to the english identity so these kind of identity factors matters and then of course the set of attitudinal factors uh that we would expect to matter also um also were also strong predictors of the the vote choice so people who were concerned about immigration and wanted to lower immigration were more likely to vote leave uh also um Attitudes towards whether or not the EU had been beneficial economically uh, would make you more likely to remain if you thought that was the case. Uh, and expectations about what Brexit would do. Uh, so, of course, many Leave voters were not persuaded by the Remain message that this would be very economically risky and therefore were more likely to vote Leave.
0: So you've already mentioned that you have, of course, previously studied referendums on European integration. My question would be, how would you say was the Brexit vote similar or different from these other referendums on European integration?
1: No, it's uh, similar in the sense that you find, uh, uh, what what you tend to find in referendums is that it's it's very rarely just sort of a matter of the particular issue on the ballot, you always have a host of factors that tend to play into campaigns. And campaigns are hugely important in referendums. So uh, what we have found in many referendums is that, for example, how you feel about the political elite, how you feel about the government uh, will matter in, in referendums. And we also found that Uh, to an extent here, that people who felt had lower trust in politicians, people who were dissatisfied with the the Cameron government were also uh, more likely uh, to vote uh, to leave. And similarly, uh, also, your skepticism not surprisingly matters. So people who are generally unhappy with the EU were, of course, more likely to vote to leave. Uh, Now, what, in a sense, uh, what was sort of surprising uh, and what I think surprised many in this campaign was that here was a clear case where the consequences of voting uh, to leave were really quite serious. So there was a lot of uncertainty. And some scholars had argued that if this, uh, uh, what I called in my book on referendums, uh, this reversion point, in other words, what happens if you vote no, if that is very very far removed from the current situation. So in other words, if the consequences are really quite radical and stark, and there's a lot of uncertainty about them, then voters might be more risk averse, and they might be more likely to vote for the status quo. Uh, and now, clearly, that didn't happen. As we know, uh, a majority of 51.9% of British voters voted to leave the European Union, despite the fact that there were clearly uncertainty and risk associated with it. So I think that was the key point in which uh, many uh, commentators and, and experts were thinking uh, or were surprised by the result and felt that it differed from uh, from the sort of conventional wisdom of how we think voters should behave.
0: So the the radical consequences of those of this decision? And do you think that was also maybe a reason why they held the referendum in the first place that they, they just did not expect that the British citizens would vote for such a radical change of the status quo?
1: I think that's exactly right. It was very clear that the government you could were, were quite convinced that this was one that if This was made to be an in-out referendum, such a stark choice. This was one that could be won. I mean, that was certainly David Cameron's um, uh, not only hope, but I think also expectations going into this. And it was also generally the expectations of the markets, of most commentators and so on. And that was despite the fact that actually the polls... Uh, were not that unequivocal when you look at them leading up to it. It was a very close race and there were several polls saying that this would be uh, a, a leave vote. Nonetheless, most people seem to be convinced that this would not happen. I think there's another experience that speaks to that, and that was the a referendum on Scottish independence, that was the sort of most recent experience that the British government had had of campaigning, where, of course, uh, they had won. In other words, uh, Scottish independence was rejected. And I think that really made them think, well, if as long as you make the economic consequences uh, seem uh, sufficiently uncertain and sufficiently potentially uh, bad, then then this can be won and voters will vote with their pocketbook. And, of course, at the end of the day... Uh, voters thought, you know, a majority of voters thought, well, maybe this will not be, we won't be better off economically, but certainly we will have more sovereignty, uh, and we will have more, um, we will be able to control our own laws in areas such as immigration. And that won the day and not the sort of, uh, fear mongering, as you may call it, from the, from the Remain side.
0: One factor you also mentioned in the article is the, you could say, quite lackluster campaign of labor and especially the labor leadership under Jeremy Corbyn. So my question would be, what would your assessment be and how much did that affect the outcome of the referendum and the counterfactual had there been a labor leadership campaigning more aggressively for remain would you do you think this would have changed the outcome
1: i mean here again there's some some clear parallels with previous referendums uh, on european integration, for example in in france uh, on the constitutional treaty and the Maastricht treaty when you have up the main opposition party that on paper is meant to be on the same side as the government party campaigning for the pro-European message. But in reality, think, oh, they don't want to give too much of a boost to the government. They don't want to give too much. They want to still sort of, you know, campaign, uh, you know, in a sort of, as you said, rather lackluster manner, that this really uh, ends, can, can sometimes end up costing them uh, the outcome that they want, uh, because they don't really mobilize their own voters. And we certainly saw that in this referendum, of course, there was a was mainly conservative voters, to be fair, that voted uh, leave. But there was also a very big chunk of Labour voters who voted leave. And it was very clear from Jeremy Corbyn's own performances in the uh, campaign that not only uh, was he not particularly active, um, if you look at the media analysis of how much he appeared, but also um, I remember he was asked on one particular uh, TV show about, uh, you know, how, you know, how strongly did he feel about staying in the European Union? And he said, oh, on a scale of, of, of one to 10, he would sort of give it a six or a seven. Now that's hardly an impassioned, um, a sort of, uh, impassioned plea to vote to stay in the European Union. So, so I think, I think that's certainly played a role in just, uh, not persuading and convincing those crucial labour voters who would not be convinced by a Farage or by a Boy uh, sorry, by a David Cameron, uh, but were also not then persuaded by a person they might otherwise have listened to. Mm.
0: So one fear after the Brexit vote. Now, if you look at the the whole European Union at the time, really was. And you mentioned that in the article too, that there would be this kind of domino effect, that now that Britain had decided to leave, the sentiment in other countries could be channeled toward a similar decision. But that didn't really happen, right?
1: No, it's it, it certainly didn't happen, uh, and uh, and that was, I think, came as a as quite a relief. Um, to many uh, European leaders and, and also to Brussels. The reason that came as a relief was, of course, that the Euro-skeptic movements and parties and the Euro-skeptic sentiment is not a British-only phenomenon. It's something we know from across Europe. Now, uh, I mean, I think if we think of the likelihood that something like that happening, we need to think of it as a sort of two-step process. The first step is you need a government uh, unless you have a sort of initiative process, you need a government that's willing uh, to call that referendum. And there, of course, Britain uh, has traditionally been quite unique in that most other European countries have not had governments that have been that Eurosceptic that they would, they would take such a gamble. And they've not been that internally divided. But of course, we know now that other governments in Europe are also Eurosceptics. so it's not an, it's not impossible. You could imagine a scenario where uh, the National Rally of Marine Le Pen won in France and would call a referendum. So it's not impossible, but it's certainly less likely across the continent. And then the second step is the question of if a referendum was called, is this Euroscepticism in Britain? Um, is that unique or is that of just different order of magnitude? And again, yes, and to some extent, Britain has certainly been more Eurosceptic, but it's certainly not impossible, especially when we think about how unpredictable uh, referendum results can be that this would happen elsewhere. Now, what we have seen, in fact, since Brexit is there's been a sort of boost uh, to pro-membership, pro pro-EU sentiment in the rest of the continent. And some of that, if we analyze the people who are more positive about membership, it's often the people who think that the consequences of Brexit for Britain are quite severe. Um, and uh, if we link that back to work, for example, by Catherine DeVries, we can say that the sort of Brexit benchmark here is, is one that makes it look like trying to imitate something in your own country and say, OK, we'll try and go it alone as well. Doesn't look very appealing at this point in time. But, of course, that can change. You can imagine, well, it's hard to imagine any kind of economic success story anywhere in the world right now, but you can imagine in the medium or long term that Brexit uh, maybe it turns out to be not such a bad thing uh, after all. And if that's the case, of course, all of a sudden we do have a model of a country, an emeritus membership state that has left, but is uh, potentially doing okay outside. I mean, that's all hypothetical, but it's just to say, Just because there wasn't a domino effect to start with doesn't mean that Brexit will not continue to be something that Eurosceptic movements and forces and citizens can look to as an example of what it looks like to leave the EU.
0: So in a way, you would say that the quite messy pro- process then now of brexit actually happening has given citizens in europe a more tangible idea of the consequences of this this stark change of the status quo that should have po- possibly prevented brexit in the first place that maybe some people just didn't believe would be so uh, so strong and, and and crass in the when they made the decision
1: Yes, exactly so. And of course, uh, not only, I mean, it really did look like rather like a mess for, for years, because not only, uh, did Britain not get a sort of, uh, an amazing deal from the EU, but it also just showed, uh, citizens across the continent how this decision to leave the EU really divided Britain internally. I mean, this has really been an issue that has dominated British politics for four years. Uh, and that has split parties, have split, you know, families and, and so on. Uh, and, and on top of that, it didn't look like it would be the kind of economic and political success that perhaps Brexiteers had hoped for. So so as that kind of reference point of benchmark, uh, both parties and citizens across Europe would have looked to Britain and thought, oh, well, maybe it's better to, to change the EU from the inside than to try to, to leave the club. Mm-hmm.
0: You write in the article that um, the the sentiment that led to the Brexit outcome and the Brexit decisions, that they are by no means distinctively British, but they, and you already mentioned this now, uh, are quite widespread across the European Union. Can you explain to us what the core determinants of this type of Euroscepticism are among the European citizens?
1: That's of course, you know, a big question that's up to uh, that's a, that's a debated uh, in the literature. But there are certainly some some factors that we can uh, we can point to. If we think about the sort of evolution of uh, of studies of your skepticism, they very much started by looking at uh, socio economic factors. And they and the starting point there was really that those who benefit from market integration, those who are more educated, who can uh, take advantage of traveling or take advantage or in professional jobs are really the ones who are going to be more pro-European, whereas those who are less skilled and less likely to take advantage of a sort of bigger market will be more Eurosceptic. And we can see that uh, in the sort of education as a key demographic uh, dividing line. Um, we can also see it in age, as we already mentioned with the, the Brexit vote, that younger people, especially in Britain, but also to some extent elsewhere, um, are more pro-European than older people. Now, then, of course, uh, Lisbeth hocher Gary Marks, uh, Lauren McLaren and others um, really started arguing, well, it's not all about economics, you know what the EU is, is a political project, it's a project of integration, so it's all about identities. And we saw that, as we already talked about, play out in the the Brexit vote, but we also know that it's a determinant of your scepticism. If you feel that you have one strong, exclusive national identity, you just feel German, you just feel Danish... You're much more likely to then be your skeptic than if you feel you have multiple identities, like you might feel Bavarian and German and European, or you might feel, you know, you're from Copenhagen and Denmark and also European. And those kind of multiple inclusive identities are more likely to make you favor European integration. And then, of course, that's the sort of, the sort of cultural versus economics argument we see playing out also in the study of populism. But then on top of that, there's there's politics. Yeah? How is this mobilized by particular parties? And how does the particular political context in which you live, how does that shape how you look at the European Union? And there are a number of scholars, you know, starting with Sanchez Cuenca and Rothschneider have argued that if you look very positively upon your own democratic institutions then uh you might actually uh be more negative about the EU um because the sort of comparison uh makes you less likely to support pooling sovereignty at the European level. And that has been developed further by uh by Catherine De Ries in her in her book on Euroskepticism and her theory of of, of benchmarking. So the sort of there's the there's these economic factors And there's these more cultural identity factors, and then the particular context uh, and way in which that's mobilized in your own political system and by parties in the countries where you live.
0: So, in a way, and you mentioned this many of these arguments sound quite similar to the factors trying to explain the success of the the radical right and also anti immigrant attitudes specifically. Would you say this is really too, too. phenomenon that belong to the same bigger picture? Would you say that there are some important difference between Euroscepticism and these more anti-immigrant attitudes that lead people to support radical right parties?
1: And that's a great question. And sometimes there's a danger that we like to sort of lump all of these things together. For example, a lot of people like to think of the Brexit vote as just something quote unquote populist. And then there was Trump and he was populist. And then there was the radical right. And like they're all the same thing. If we, and, and, and sometimes you lose a lot of, even though there are clear parallels, you lose some analytical nuance if you just sort of lump everything, all of these sort of big trends together. If we think of comparing your uh, scepticism and voting for the radical right, of course, one thing to keep in mind is that your scepticism is also found on the left. Uh, now, so so actually, your scepticism on the left was not as pronounced in the Brexit vote as it as sometimes is on the continent. But if we think of Southern Europe, for example, there have been quite strong and prominent Eurosceptic movements that came out on the left and were often anti-austerity. And that wanted a Europe that was more uh, in favor of redistribution and so on. And m- perhaps that's something we're going to see more of again in in the in the wake of this uh, coronavirus crisis. So sort of US skepticism thats a critique of the European Union failing to support poorer member states or member states in crisis. So, so yes, there is a US form of Euroscepticism that's very focused on, on, a very linked to nativism and anti-immigration. But there's also another form of your skepticism on the left that is quite different and where the anti-immigration message is not prominent at all.
0: For the things that you, you just mentioned, there also exists this narrative that's strongly linked to the left behind in quotation marks. And in this podcast, I already talked to Kasmüde and I think he made an interesting point saying that this left behind narrative also shows a normative change just using the words left behind already creates this very understanding and giving a certain type of much more positive frames for in his case people supporting the radical right and it seems similar in the case of brexit right so are these people are the brexit supporters really the left behind and then why
1: I mean, the the first thing to note is that in the case of of the Brexit vote, you know, almost 52% of of people who turned out to vote voted for Brexit. So, of course, it's not the same as we see in certain continental European countries where you have perhaps 20%, 15%, 20% supporting the radical right. I mean, this was over half the population. And you can certainly not call over half the population uh, the left behind. Uh, the other thing to think is that this was really a coalition uh, of different groups. Um, some of those uh, left behind, not necessarily economically, but many people who might not have been, as as we talked about, as well-educated. Um, uh, as others. So, um, but it could also be sort of quite, you know, you also have quite rich people living in, in certain parts of England who may be older, richer people who just were, uh, opposed to, um, to the EU as a political project, perhaps also opposed to the way in which, um, immigration had changed British society and so on. So there's really, it's certainly not a sort of clear, a simple income story where it's just, oh, people voted for Brexit because, uh, they didn't have enough, um, you know, th- that they had been left behind by globalization and sort of. Sp- pure income terms it's not in any way as simple as that on the other hand there is also studies that have shown that at the, at the edges at the margins we do see that for example communities that have been particularly badly affected by austerity were also the ones more likely to vote um to vote for brexit so there is an economic story there is a cultural story and there's a political story but again sort of when it's when you have a political moment that where you have more than half the population uh, voting for something, of course, it's not as as simple as just saying, oh, it's just one particular group that that uh, got it over the line. This was really sort of a groundswell of support uh, for this, you know, what many saw as a as a as a positive big moment of you know taking back control for Britain. Uh, and there would be a variety of different motivations that fit into that, including some being anti immigration, but some also being about hoping that you could have a different uh, kind of politics.
0: Mm-hmm. So, one factor that we haven't talked about so much yet is the role of issue entrepreneurs with this. And you have, of course, a forthcoming book that I already talked to Catherine Jeffries about on exactly this question. So, how important is it that you have a political party as an entrepreneur that mobilizes this kind of sentiment? Could there be the same type of political decision without such an entrepreneur?
1: I think that uh, Britain is an interesting case when it comes to these political entrepreneurs or challenger parties, as Catherine and I call them, because because it's a, it's a first-past-the-post or majoritarian electoral system, it's incredibly difficult for these talented parties to really break through in uh, in parliamentary politics, uh, as we've seen with the repeated attempts of of UKIP to try and get seats, a failed attempt to try and get seats in, in the House of Commons. And nonetheless, of course, UKIP had a huge impact uh, as a political entrepreneur when it came to ultimately uh, bringing about Brexit. And the first way in which they did was really um, to present a real electoral threat uh, to the Conservative Party or certainly something that was felt as a real electoral threat to the Conservative Party and therefore one that the Conservative Party needed to take seriously. Perhaps... I mean, again, this is a sort of the world of counterfactuals, but you can imagine that without UKIP, uh, it would have been easier for the, for the, um, then leadership of the conservative party to say, well, Europe, we're divided on Europe, but we really don't need to, to talk about it or think about it, uh, because it's not something that voters care about. Because if you look at polls, it really wasn't something that voters cared about. Now, what UKIP did was two things that were important. First of all, they did you know, win a lot of uh, votes and therefore were seen to weaken uh, the Conservative Party in a number of constituencies. And that gave fuel to the Eurosceptic wing within the the Conservative Party that said, you know, we have to take this seriously. And the second thing they did, uh, which we touched upon briefly earlier, is this idea of issue linkage. So they really managed to say, well, The EU is not just this distant bureaucratic organization. The EU is the organization, that institution that prevents us from tackling some of the key issues we care about uh namely immigration uh so we can't decide how many people come into our country because of the EU and of course in the leave campaign act, they also managed to link it with uh, um, amazingly with the NHS the national health service in the UK and saying you know we're paying all this money um so so in that sense i think political entrepreneurship was was hugely important for presenting for making the mainstream uh, move to become more Euroskeptic, i.e. the Conservative Party. So in the effect animation, which is something of course that your work uh, has focused on, and secondly uh, in really being a real uh, potential electoral threat and also of course managed to linking the EU issue with other issues that were more salient to the public.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe relatedly, you also mentioned the role of the media and there my question would be what yeah, what role do you think the very specific, particular media environment in the UK when it comes to questions of the European Union, what role that has played for the decision?
1: I think here we need to think about it really in a, in a long-term perspective rather than necessarily what role did it play just in the campaign. But in the long-term perspective, of course, you have had decades of, especially the tabloid media, but also part of the more right-wing um, mainstream, broadsheet newspapers that have just been very, very sceptical and critical of the European Union. So it's it's within that context that the Brexit referendum was held. Um, it's difficult, of course, to know what the causal effect of the media is in any particular context. There is a uh, an interesting study by Daniel Bishop and Florian Foos that looks at the just the effect of the sun no longer being bought in Liverpool seemed to make people more Euro, uh, pro-European. So that suggests that actually perhaps in the long term, had the UK had a different press, more pro-European press, maybe things would have been different. Yeah. But but again, it's it, it, it's a sort of counter factor. But, but certainly the but British press was very sceptic, And even in the uh, in the referendum campaign itself, Uh, a number of newspapers went out and advocated for uh, that voters should vote to leave the European Union. And that's really highly unusual if you compare in the context of other EU referendum campaigns where traditionally the media, uh, especially the mainstream media, has been very pro-European.
0: We're now, of course, again living uh, through a time where a crisis seems to have the potential to politicize issues of European integration at a high level in the domestic context. For example, if you look at the changing public opinion in Italy at the moment toward EU membership. So I don't want to ask you for a prediction, but what what are your thoughts on how this crisis can or will shape your skepticism in the European Union.
1: I think Europe is facing a very dangerous situation. I mean not only because of the crisis itself, which of course is shared across Europe to different degrees, but really because of the EU's response or perhaps lack of response to it. So, what the the pandemic has revealed is some of the same division lines, some of the same uh some of the same problems that the Eurozone crisis revealed namely with you know the north uh in this case for exemplified really by the dutch reaction to it, not really wanting to show solidarity or help out the south and that's certainly being politicized uh in 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 italy for example now with 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 public opinion shifting against and being more critical of the eu now right now what we're seeing across europe is of course a sort of very much a rally around the flag effect so that the pandemic has generally had this effect of governments becoming more popular uh whatever sort of type of government, and regardless almost of the response they have uh, had to the crisis, they've become more popular in the short term. however, in the long term of course, I mean we are going to, what is going to be the long term effect of this crisis i mean even when we come out on the other side of the of the health crisis, we're going to have a massive economic crisis and potentially also a political crisis. Certainly, it's something that could provide fertile fertile ground for political entrepreneurs to mobilize against the government and also mobilize in different ways from the left and from the right against uh, the European Union. And I think in many ways the European Union has made that easier, that attack. Uh, by simply being ineffective in, in how to respond to it and not, they've not been seen as part of the solution. Uh, the solutions have really been manifold, but they've been national solutions. Uh, and in that sense, the EU is not seen as, as what it really ought to be. Uh, namely a way in which countries come together to provide the best solutions to collective problems. And the pandemic could have been seen as a collective problem that could have been solved, in part collectively, but instead we've had a number of domestic responses. Mm
0: -hmm. That really brings me to to the next question, and that is, in much what we were talking about, until now the European Union was basically the passive object of sentiments of citizens and uh, a, an issue that parties mobilized. But what can the European Union actively do to shape these attitudes and generate more support for the European Union?
1: I mean it's very difficult for the EU to act as a sort of a, a, to be an active mobilise or persuade of attitudes, because they tend not to, you know, independently, what is the EU? I mean, the EU is politicians in various institutions, including, of course, national ministers, uh, prime ministers and so on that make up the council. So the EU is not really something that's separate from domestic politics, but, of course, often uh leaders, national leaders, when they act, even in an EU capacity, if things go well, they have the incentives to then take the credit for it as being a national prime minister or a national minister of health and so on and not say, oh, we do this in the capacity um as as being, you know, a council member and so on. So that creates a real problem for the EU in terms of being something that uh has an independent voice domestically. Because the political sphere, the public spheres are very still very much domestic. And that means there's not really uh, a space within which the EU can be independent of those domestic incentive structures. And here it's clear that national politicians will have the incentives to take credit for the things when they go well, but also to an extent uh perhaps blame the EU when they don't go so well. <clears throat>
0: So what could national governments or politicians then maybe do differently, assuming that they care about the European Union and not only their national interests or their own vote shares?
1: I mean, of course, what national governments could do and what some national governments uh, do do is to highlight uh, the importance of the EU and solutions that have been found collectively and, and sort of share the credit, uh, so to speak, uh, and to not just talk about we have been able to, you know, Get this equipment out of these ventilators, or we have been able to do this bailout, but perhaps highlight when the EU has played a role in these sort of decisions so so that's um uh, that's clearly part of it of course, there are also European institutions here that have a specific euro like the European Parliament, and again, the question is you know how big of a role do they play in most domestic political debates and I would say probably not a very big role they're not so visible domestically
0: hmm so we're already coming to an end of the podcast. There's one final question that I always ask uh, all the guests, and that is for reading recommendation. So I would ask you for a reading recommendation, one that is a political science piece and another one that's a non-academic, maybe even a piece of fiction.
1: Oh, well, that's a, a, a challenging question uh, to end on. Um, I was thinking, in terms of uh, the political science recommendation, that one book uh, that uh, inspired me when I was when I was writing my original book on referendums. But generally, when when we think about a lot of these democratic upheavals that have happened, is a book by Arthur Lupia and Matthew McCubbins called *The Democratic Dilemma*. It's quite an old book. I think it was written back in in 19- Eight but it's one that really looks at these questions of whether citizens are competent enough to take complicated democratic institution uh, decisions but also how do we design uh, institution to make sure that they have the best outcome and that citizens can navigate them and how do we design institutions so that politicians we get the best, best politicians that we can get. And I think that's something that, in an era of populism and referendums are very pertinent questions, and they uh they really ask a lot of interesting questions and provide some interesting answers in that book. so I think that's one that I would recommend, even though it's not specifically on European politics. I think it's relevant to a lot of these this transformation of of European politics that we are seeing now uh fiction <laughs> so um so in this uh age of the, of the pandemic, we should have lots of time to maybe revisit some classics. I I was thinking there's lots of wonderful books, but one uh, book that I wanted to mention, which is also rather an old, um, an old book, but one that, that, uh, that sort of links with some of my own heritage is uh, Peter Hu's Smiller's Sense of Snow. So this is a Danish author writing about a Greenlandic a uh, woman um but it's also a crime novel because we want something a bit exciting i think uh, in these times but it's also one that links with my own heritage in Denmark and Greenland but it's um it's an interesting book because one of the things that the author Peter Who does beautifully is just uh, how he writes about her amazing sense of of snow and the different, you know, in Green, Greenlandic you famously have many words for snow, but also that he can solve this crime mystery because he really understands the snow. And one of the things I wonder is as we all come out of our respective lockdowns, whether we will have a sort of keener sense of Of nature and the things around us in this sort of, in the way that Miss Miller has in this book, because we've all been sitting inside for so long. So, so I think it's, it's a nice, a nice book to read in these strange times.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, I learned a lot. Thanks really for the conversation and uh, thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did.